I do want to thank you very much for the invitation to be here. It's been, uh, over the past couple months, a really big thing on my heart to see if God is leading me towards uh, seminary um, to become a minister of the Word at some point. And over the last month, that has been a resounding yes, that's where I'm supposed to head. Um, and so this opportunity is just amazing because this is my first time outside of my home church to be able to talk to other people. So I really appreciate it. However, he didn't give me an easy book to start with. Um, <laughs> Job and Revelation, those are the two that it's like, okay, if you're going to be in your first you know, couple sermons that you're giving, you might not want to stay there. They're a little hard. Um, they're not always comfortable to preach from, but I'm going to try to do my best today for you. Thinking about this message, I really started thinking about uh, if any of you have ever been in a liberal arts class or uh, you know, had a liberal arts education, you most likely had to take some form of philosophy while you were doing that. Now, it may have been just an intro to philosophy class or perhaps... Perhaps you know you went to ethics or you took some advanced classes because you really like the subject. Either way, um, my experiences with philosophy have been varied. I went to Calvin College, and while I was there, I took a couple philosophy classes, and um, I enjoyed the classes. Uh, the logic and rational arguments that are used to take a look at daily life, and you can make conclusions about, you know, oh, this is why things like this happen, or why people think this way, or you know, the ethics and morals and values. Um, I really liked how that could be used. However, I also saw how philosophy can be important and a component of theology. How understanding God and using, you know, okay, these are the ways that God's nature is and being able to look at that, I was able to develop a better understanding of God. And yet there's also a downside to philosophy sometimes. In some of my classes, I also saw how students would sometimes just get so frustrated that um, the thoughts and the ideas would get so abstract that my mind would start wandering as a student and a professor start arguing back and forth, neither of them really listening to one another. Well, while preparing for this message and reading the book of Job, I couldn't help but be reminded of these philosophy classes. As I read the arguments Job's friends put forward and reading how Job responds and then seeing how they each begin to get increasingly frustrated with each other, it just reminded me a lot of those classes. I think philosophy is a good word to use when describing the book of Job. The word comes from the Greek... Philosophia, which literally means the love of wisdom. Now, philosophy is normally characterized by the use and approach of a rational argument to address problems associated with life, existence, reality. The book of Job is traditionally listed amongst the other wisdom literature in the Bible, alongside Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then also the Song of Songs. Now, I want to take you from chapters 22 to 31 this week, um, today, but... Our focus is going to land on chapter 28, where I believe arguably is one of the most beautiful descriptions of what wisdom is in the entire Bible. Um, traditionally at my home church, we stand for the reading of the core scripture. Um, and the reason for this is that Jesus would have stood um, when he was in the synagogue when they were reading the scriptures, and then they would sit down for the teaching. And so would you please uh, stand with me as I read Job 28, 20 through 28. Job 28, starting at verse 20, says this. It says, Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it, and he said to man, 
The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Go ahead and be seated. If you won't mind sticking with uh, the book of Job here, uh, we'll be looking at a few other passages throughout. So as I said before, philosophy is usually characterized by use of rational argument to address the problem at hand. Now, I don't know about you, but the story of Job and the disaster that comes upon him and his household seems anything but a rational situation. As has been covered before in the last five weeks, uh, Satan comes into the presence of God and God draws attention to Job, a man who points out, he points out is blameless and upright. This leads to a challenge that God accepts where Satan is allowed to take everything from Job. He's allowed to inflict harm on him in almost every way except for taking his life. Now, I have to ask you, what kind of rational argument would you make for this situation? Enter Job's friends. After a period of silence, as they mourn with Job while Job uses shards of pottery to scrape his pus-filled, seeping wounds, Job cries out, seeking faithfully from God an explanation and demanding escape from the situation. Thus begins his friend's unhelpful arguments. Now, considering the type of these arguments, as I think you guys have discussed, the speakers are trying to have the best rhetorical argument, not necessarily trying to prove the other speakers wrong. Reading the friends' arguments as they speak, it seems as if their basic rationalizations are true. Theologically speaking, as uh, Chad mentioned before, there is truth to the arguments. God punishes sin, and he blesses righteousness. However, in their own wisdom, Job's friends come to a conclusion that means that wicked shouldn't prosper and the righteous shouldn't suffer. Therefore, Job must be, not be righteous. Rationally, these arguments make sense, and many of us would agree, agree with these conclusions on a normal basis. Though this is where they go wrong. Unfortunately, this is worldly wisdom and not true wisdom here. Because even though we may not like it, there is no rational explanation for Job's suffering. And Job knows this. Job, like many of the students I witnessed in my theology class, is getting increasingly frustrated here. He exclaims that his friends and family have all but abandoned him. And he beautifully affirms that in this life or the next, he knows that he will be vindicated the passage where Job says that he knows that his Redeemer lives, and that is not a rational argument. That is a statement of faith. And though Job has seen the wicked prosper, he argues that this does not mean that God is not in control or that he will not one day bring about real justice. So now we're getting closer into the passages we're talking about today. Job's friends are now also extremely frustrated at him. And so they begin directly arguing that Job himself is at fault for his suffering. Eliphaz begins listing sins that he believes that Job has guilty of, accusing him of withholding food from the hungry and even mistreating widows and orphans. I want you to listen really quick just to a couple of the arguments that he makes toward him. He tells him this in Job 22, uh, starting at verse 4. He says, Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is it not your wickedness great? Are you not your sins endless? You demand security from your brothers for no reason. You strip men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on, and yet you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. Wow, sounds real comforting, doesn't it? He then tells Job that he needs to repent and that God will restore him there. It's as if, but at this point, Job's response to this is as if he's not even listening to his friends anymore. In chapters 22, or 23 and 24, it seems as if Job is crying out in pain instead, questioning why is God focusing on him and yet seems so far away while wicked men continue to do evil things. 
Job cries out for relief, and he declares how he has been faithful to God. And in his crying, he says this, uh, Job 23, 10 through 12. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed my steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than daily bread. More than daily bread. That's how precious the word of God is to Job. Now, being that we often assume that this is one of the oldest books of the Bible, I don't know how that word, how he received that, if it was from God's lips himself, if it was from you know, other stories, or maybe it was just tradition or uh, oral history passed down. Well, Job's friend, Bilidad, not to be outdone, points out that God is just by his very nature. Therefore, Job must have sinned. He says that even if the moon and stars are not pure in the eyes of God, how much less a man who's only a maggot or a worm? These aren't even arguments anymore. Basically, his friends are basically slandering him and just saying, Job, you are a worthless maggot, a worthless worm. Job is fed up with his friend's so-called wisdom. If you think that millennials or teenagers have mastered the art of sarcasm, you need to read Job, uh, the beginning of Job chapter 26 here. Job 26, 1 through 4. Then Job replied, How you have helped the powerless! How have you saved the arm that is feeble! What advice and wisdom you have offered to one without wisdom! And what great insight you have displayed! Who has helped you utter these words, and whose spirit spoke from your mouth? Job sarcastically addresses what his friends consider wisdom, but he also harshly insinuates that whatever is inspiring their advice must not come from the Spirit of God. In the chapters before, Job has said that God's words are treasured more than daily bread to him. Does that sound familiar? When Jesus is tempted by Satan, when he's using his, Satan's using his wisdom, Jesus turns around and says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's being said here is that God's words are life-giving, as true inspired wisdom of God should be. The words of wisdom his friends are speaking are far from life-giving and far from true wisdom. Job then pleads with his friends to seek true wisdom. And at the end of chapter 28, he sums it up as we read, beautifully stating that true wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That is true wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. This summary of wisdom, opposed to all the arguments and rationalizations from Job's friends, is true Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom. Did you catch at the beginning of the book of Job where God points out to Job to Satan and says that Job is a blameless, upright man? The very beginning of Job, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job 2, verse 3. Again, when Satan comes a second time. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Without any reason. Job's suffering does not have a reasonable explanation. There is no rational argument for why these things are happening to him. I don't like this. Personally, every worldly piece of wisdom tells me that this isn't the way that it should be. 
But the book of Job doesn't tell us why of Job's suffering or his why of his circumstances, even though this is the first question that we want to ask. I was talking with a friend a few weeks back about another message that I was preparing for my home church. And she kept bringing up this book, Crazy Love, by Francis Chan. And she kept saying that, you know, oh, he was talking about this. Or, oh, he was talking about this on the issues that I was hoping to address. And so, having not read the book, I promptly went out, picked it up, and started reading through it. And in this book, Chan pulls no punches. And just in the first chapter, I found there are a couple of quotes that I felt really applied well when looking at the book of Job. In the first chapter, he asks this question. He says, Can you worship a God who isn't obligated to explain his actions to you? Could it be your arrogance that thinks God owes you an explanation? Well, that doesn't make me feel very good about myself in that sense. But you see, true wisdom is not the ability to explain the why of things. The book of Job tells us the how. How we should respond to God in all circumstances. How a right relationship with God should look. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom. But what does Job mean by the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord here is not fear in the sense of terror or being scared, although it does contain an aspect of awe and reverence for the Almighty. What helps us in understanding this verse is to maybe look at the word used for the name of God here. It's translated Lord. But the Hebrew word here is Adonai. And this is the only place in Job where it's used. Most of the other references to God in the book of Job are names like Shaddai, which means the Almighty. This was the name that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob used for God. Also El and Eloh, which is simply translated God. The name Yahweh, which is covenant name of God given to Moses, is found in printed editions of Job, but nine of the original manuscripts don't contain it, and so there is some argument as whether the author was aware of this name or if later on people translated it just took Lord and translated it and put Yahweh in there. But Adonai is best translated master or lord, or perhaps even more appropriately, lord my master. It's the term a servant or a slave would use for their master, and it signifies ownership. What it indicates is that God is the owner of Job and consequently all he owns, even Job's life. Now Job is well aware that, he, that everything he owns is not his own but belongs to God. The fear of one's master can best be described as a proper relationship between servant and Lord, or in this case, a proper faith relationship with God. Job summarizes that the true meaning of life, wisdom, is found through a right faith relationship with God, fear of the Lord. It's a concept that echoes throughout the wisdom literature of the Bible and also throughout the rest of Scripture. just want to give you a few examples here really quick. In the Psalms, 111.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belong eternal praises. In the book of Proverbs, which was written by Solomon, who was known world over for his wisdom, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In Ecclesiastes, also often thought to be written by Solomon, the teacher says, or the teacher decided to see what worldly wisdom had to offer. And then when determining that it was all meaningless and a disappointment, he often calls it a chasing after the wind or a vapor, he comes to this conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes. He says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Job showed he had true reverent faith in God, a fear of the Lord. In a recent conversation with my mom, she gave me a really neat acronym for faith. F-A-I-T-H. 
Forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. It's an apt description of Job's response here. Although he doesn't understand the why, and even though he questions God, you know, why is this happening to me, he forsakes all his wealth possessions, even his family that he has lost, and he trusts in Adonai, his Lord and Master. This is why God called him blameless. Nothing that Job had done and earned had earned him his righteousness that we're talking about here, but his faith in God alone. Job didn't know the gospel message. He's not familiar with the name of Jesus Christ. But the truth of this wisdom is the same now as it was then. Paul, while talking about, the right, about righteousness in Romans 1.17, says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. One of my favorite passages of scripture is found in Hebrews, where the author talks about faith and heroes of faith in the whole Bible. Hebrews, uh, mostly the list of heroes, or heroes of faith is in chapter 11, but I'm going to actually start at Hebrews 10, 36. Starting at verse 36, it says this. It says, You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. If he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, the rest of the passage is long, but I could keep going on. Read how faith is, the faith of each of these people on this list was considered righteous. They believed that God, in his infinite wisdom, knew best, as did Job. They believed in something that they had believed in something and had hope in something unseen. And as Abraham, it was faith that was reckoned to them as righteousness. This is not rational. It's not rational to believe in something unseen. It's not scientific to trust in something that you can't touch, taste, see, hear, or even completely understand sometimes. This is Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom. This is faith. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, spoke of the wisdom of God in a chapter by the same name. If you haven't read it, I really suggest that you take a look at it. He goes through attributes and characteristics of God and just gives kind of a, this idea that, you know, how big God is. And at the end, I don't know if I really knew more about God, but I was more awe of him when I was done. In it, he says this, In the Holy Scriptures, wisdom, when used of God and good men, always carries a strong moral connotation. It is conceived as being pure, loving, and good. Wisdom that is mere shrewdness is often attributed to evil men, but such wisdom is treacherous and false. These two kinds of wisdom are in perpetual conflict. Indeed, when seen from the lofty peak of Sinai or Calvary, the whole history of the world is discovered to be but a contest between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Satan and fallen men. The outcome of the contest is not in doubt. The imperfect must fall before the perfect at last. God has warned that he will take the wise in their own craftiness and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Doesn't this make you think of the Job, Job story here? Or perhaps it reminds you of the entirety of Scripture, where the wisdom of God is contested by the wisdom of Satan or, or the world. Wasn't Adam and Eve's sin listening to Satan, his shrewd and crafty wisdom, and believing that the wisdom of discerning for themselves what was right and wrong was greater than the wisdom of God who told them, don't eat the fruit? As Job states so beautifully here, a right relationship of God also means shunning evil. 
Paul tells the church at Ephesus, among believers there should not even be a hint of immorality. Not even a hint. It's so easy to fall into the trap of defining for ourselves what is right. For defining for ourselves, you know, what's right, what's wrong, within our own wisdom or worldly wisdom, and accepting that, you know, oh, God may have said this, but, you know, everybody around me, it's not, it's not that bad. Hopefully from Job's words here, we can see how important it is to seek true wisdom and see what true wisdom is. A little further along in his first chapter of the book Crazy Love, Chan makes this statement. He says, God is the only being who is good, and the standards are set by him. Because God hates sin, he has to punish those guilty of sin. Maybe that's not an appealing standard, but to put it bluntly, when you get your own universe, you can make your own standard. Now, this does sound a lot like the arguments made by Job's friends. However, Job never says that this is untrue. Godly wisdom says to shun evil in order to have a right relationship with God, and God is the one who set the standard. Job knows this from the very beginning, and he has this understanding of how to have a relationship with his master. He knows that God has to punish sin. The disagreement here isn't in that. The disagreement is in the conclusion that his friends make that Job is being punished for sins here. Job knows that this is not the reason for his suffering. He doesn't understand why he's suffering. And so he beautiful, in a beautiful soliloquy, he cries out to God, reminding his master of how he has been faithful, how he has properly feared the Lord, and how, Job says, I have shunned evil. Just as his friend earlier on made a list of things that he thought that Job had sinned and done, Job now makes a list and says, I have not done these things. This is how I have conducted my life. He makes a final case based upon his faithful life in the past and how he has been respected for it. He asks God to vindicate him based upon this true wisdom and his fear of the Lord. And then growing silent at the end of chapter 33, Job waits for God to answer. The fear of the Lord, that is true wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. I pray that this will become the philosophy for my life, my love of wisdom. To forsake all I trust him. Adonai, Lord my master. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning that you have given us, Lord, and for this book of Job. It often boggles our mind and has parts in it that we can't understand or even begin to accept sometimes because we don't like what we see there, Lord. We want things to be rational. We want you to be, this is why it happened, and be able to explain, oh, okay, I see where that is. But Lord, what we learn from the book of Job here, and I hope, Lord, that you will take home with us today, is that you are our Lord and Master. Everything we have is yours. And so you don't ask us to understand all the time. You just ask us to believe, to have faith in you. And, Lord, I just ask that you would grow that faith and that we would know that, as Job did, that his Lord and Master in the end would do right, that our Redeemer does live, and that that's what we can put our hope, faith, and trust in. May I have pray. Amen.